following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Welcome this morning. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here. Sam, I see that very vigorous wave from back there. Thank you for that. Uh, He's sinking into his chair like this. (laughs) Oh boy, good to be here this morning. We're looking forward to uh, sharing with you uh, in Matthew's Gospel again, chapter 6, as we uh, take part 2 of our series on prayer this morning. Our scripture reading is found in Isaiah 52, if you would turn there, getting close to one of the most important and famous for us chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. That will be this evening in our reading sequence, but uh, Isaiah 52 will lead us into that. It's just a pity that more people don't know Isaiah 53 exceedingly well. It's a very, very significant portion of God's Word. But Isaiah 52, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Brother Thurman, did you notice? We've got the Assyrian captivity here, too. Yeah, so you're not going to cover that one in your series of teaching? Someday, he says. He's been telling us about the various captivities. Yes, he's more after the southern kingdom, which we well understand. Therefore, verse 6 says, My people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Listen, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. 
and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. All right, we're going to invite Naomi to come and share with us her ministry of music. Thank you, dear. so much, Naomi. That was excellent. And you young people want to go out to junior church now? Looks like they do. <laughs> All right, you're welcome to do that at this time. That, that musical piece uh, offers some challenges, and uh, not to mention playing it and singing it at the same time. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew uh, Chapter 6, please. Matthew and chapter 6. We're going to be studying the passage that Naomi just sang for us. And so thus we put it right before the message. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 9 through 13, a very familiar portion of Scripture, but I trust that its familiarity will not dull its importance or what insights that we could glean today from it. Matthew chapter 6. The model 
prayer, the model prayer. Uh, I suspect some of you may be feeling a little bit sticky and warm. Uh, we, we, we didn't turn on the uh, circuit breaker on the air conditioner uh, in time uh, before today, so we're obeying the, uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians, yes. But uh, our, turn it on now. You, know, you can take your coat off. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> All righty. All right, Matthew chapter 6, please. Jesus taught us in chapter 6 earlier in the verses that we looked at last time that God rejects two kinds of prayers, at least two kinds of prayers, one of the hypocrites and one of the heathen. The one of the hypocrites is rejected by God because what they really want is not the honor of God, but they want the recognition of other people. They're not interested in, in, in exalting and uplifting God. They want recognition themselves. They appear outwardly religious, but in fact, they are not truly so. Jesus also taught us that God rejects the prayer of the heathen, as we said, that word we don't often use much anymore, but it's a word that refers to pagan idolaters. I put a little footnote at the bottom of these notes for you about that word. There, there is, in fact, a religion known as paganism today, and that religion is subscribed to by over a million people in the United States. It might seem hard to believe that there are really people who are so contrary that they would believe in a religion called paganism. But that, that's basically actually what a lot of people do believe, whether they call it that or not. Nature is God. Man and, and, and uh, animals and plants and rocks and all are pretty much all the, the, the same thing. And, um, of course, all kinds of other things go with that. There's no moral restraints in that system. In fact, there would only be an encouragement to moral excess in it. Um, but that's paganism, idolatry. Uh, in fact, generally, we use the term paganism to refer to those who deny the Christian God and follow other gods. So it has a more broad application than just that specific one today. But why does Jesus reject the prayer of, or say God rejects the prayer of the heathen? Well, in this passage, he says, because they, through their vain repetitions, think that they're going to be heard by God for their many words, that this ritual is going to earn them notice before the Lord. Now, both of these things, the hypocritical prayer and the heathen prayer, are prayers that are self-centered approaches. Instead, our prayer must be focused and must be centered upon God himself. We learned in 6, 5 through 8 that we must work hard to eliminate pride, not use empty repetition, get rid of worldliness in our prayers, and, and, have, and get rid of a low view of God, or in other words, have a high view of God in our prayer lives. Now, Jesus is going to give us a model of this in verses 9 through 13. He says in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. Now, does your Bible say it just like that? Or does it add any words there? The Greek text is kind of interesting. If I understand it correctly, it says this. He's talking about the hypocrites and the heathen and the world. And he's basically saying this. But you, he's emphasizing, you pray in a different way. You pray like this. There's a clear contrast here between our prayers and the prayers of those that do not know God through Jesus Christ. Do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the heathen. Be different. 
your prayers should be different. The model prayer that he gives then in the rest of 9 all the way through 13 shows us that our prayers must, and by extension, our, our attitudes in prayer, our, ourselves, we must revere God, we must focus on God's priorities, we must ask God for his physical provision, we must also seek God for his spiritual provision, and we must recognize God as king over all things. And we don't just do these things in our prayer time. Our prayer time is simply an extension of who we have become in Christ, that we ourselves revere God, thus our prayers demonstrate that. We don't you know, uh, suddenly make God happy because although our whole lives don't revere God, we come to our prayer closet and we pray and we suddenly say nice words to God as if it's good enough. No, our prayers really reflect who we are. And that is what the Lord is trying to teach us here in this section of Scripture. Now, not every prayer has to have all five of these elements. Perhaps you've heard of you know, little acronyms like the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, you know, to remind yourself how to pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. You, know, you don't go to God all the time and just be asking Him things. You want to say some other things too, naturally. But not every prayer has to have all those elements to be acceptable before God. I'm saying every individual prayer. But your prayer program, can I say it that way? Your pattern of prayer through your life or in our church, all these elements should be prominent over the course of time. If you're never confessing sin, then something's wrong. If you're never worshiping God, adoring Him, something is not right in your program of prayer. So you're not in sin if your you know, last prayer omitted one of these elements, but if you always omit one or more of these elements, then you have a problem. Of course, the problem is easy to resolve. Admit to God that your prayer life has been a little bit eh, you know, lacking. God is gracious. He understands. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that we're frail physically, spiritually, that our frames are but dust. And if we admit to him that he will be gracious to us, and we can amend our ways. Now, the Lord gives us this prayer, but the thing that I have found interesting over the, all the years is that people use this prayer in a way that violates what he said in verses 5 through 8. Uh, I remember ministering at a nursing home where there was kind of a, a Presbyterian flavor to it, and I'm not sure if it's how the nursing home came to be or if it was just that there were a number of people there that were of that flavor, that denominational stripe, but that kind of had permeated their practice, and they were shocked when I did not want to end every service with a, a, a congregational recitation of the Lord's Prayer. And of course, it turned into a little bit of a problem because everybody has a slightly different wording of the Lord's Prayer that they've learned from the Catholic Church or Presbyterian Church or whatever, so everybody, you know, it's like kind of crazy. But so we did that. I helped them to, to you know, do that together. But notice, <clears throat> you can't use this pattern prayer, this model prayer, in a way that violates the Lord's command not to do rote repetition. You can't just come to God and say this prayer over and over and over again. You wouldn't do that with your friends that you talk to. You wouldn't do that in 
speaking with your children or your children with you or whatever, if they came and said the same things over and over, you'd frankly get tired of it, right? So don't use this as a rote prayer. It's a model. You know what, the idea of a template? You know, you fill in the blanks. Kind of follow this, you know, this idea of revering God and asking for provisions and spiritual needs and, and adoring God and worshiping Him. Fill that in with some creative, you know, thinking, some creative wording. We can pray in a similar manner, but not in the same exact words all the time. And by saying that, I'm not saying it's wrong to use these words. Okay, you hear me. This is fine. This is a great prayer. <laughs> Who could criticize this prayer? but we can use it as a pattern. First of all, in our prayers and in our lives, we must revere God. We must revere God. Look at the beginning of the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We must address God honorably in our prayers. He's not a buddy. He's not a mere friend. Notice what it says. Our Father in heaven. He's in heaven. We're on the earth. Does that give you a little bit of an idea of where we're at? Yeah. There is a huge distinction between God and us. Total distinction because of his infinity, because of his wonder, I mean, his eternity, all those different attributes that are unable to be passed to humanity. We are not only speaking to the God who is in heaven, He created heaven. He's in charge of heaven and the earth. We cannot get around this by praying to somebody else. You know, you say, well, I can't. God's so high, I can't pray to him. I've got to pray to somebody else who will be an intermediary. You know how common that idea is? I can't pray to God. I've got to pray to some other person or angel or saint or, or something else. No, the Lord Jesus instructed us, you pray to the Father in the name of the Son, And that's it. There's no other destination for our prayers. Jesus here instructs us to pray to God, doesn't he? So let's pray to God through Christ. We're not praying to other men or saints or anything else. We're praying to God. Now, it also says here, our Father, our Father. By virtue of creation, first of all, he is our Father. And especially because he recreated us. Okay, so... You are twice a child of God. You are a child by the fact that he created you. That's that's all humanity, okay? So that doesn't mean saved or unsaved. That's just we are his his offspring, aren't we? Yeah, he's made us in his image. But then for those that are born again, he has made us twice a child, given a new birth, a new life, a new nature. He is our not only physical Father, as it were, but our spiritual Father, if I could say it that way. And we can address Him as such. I mean, several times in the New Testament, remember Paul tells us to address God as Abba, that's Daddy, Dada, the very affectionate, loving term of of a child to a father. We can address God that way. And Jesus did that as well, addressed Father. You know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Hmm. He's our Father, just like Jesus in his humanity said. Now it says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name. 
That means everything about him. When we talk about the name of God or doing something in the name of Christ, we're talking about that, what that represents. That's his good name. How, how good is your name? You, you know that. In, in fact, it's kind of interesting. In some cultures, it's more important than others to have a good reputation. I think in all cultures, there's some level of wanting to have a good reputation. But uh, you know, parents tell their children, look, don't you, don't you sully the Smith name or the Doe, John Doe name, you know, that, that's our name, that's our family, that's what represents us. And we want that to be a good name, not a name that is mud in the society or in the community around us. Well, this, is, this that represents who you are. <clears throat> and his name, everything about him, is to be what? Hallowed. It's to be honored as holy, is what that means. You might not use that word hallowed too much. Sometimes we use it when we say we go to a cemetery or some other place where famous people have trod and we say these hallowed grounds or these hallowed halls or something like that at a, at a famous university perhaps. Hallowed, something that's consecrated, something that's honored, something that's set apart. It's a wish that God's name will be held up as holy and it will be worshipped. So hallowed comes from the verb to be holy, hagiadzo in Greek. And uh, it's, it's kind of an odd word, but it, it's like taking the word holy, turning it into a verb and saying, may that be the case for you, God. May you be held up that way. Now, when you pray, God, hallowed be your name. And if you mean it, how could you soon after that prayer go and do something that would unhallow the name of God by wicked conduct? Praising God is incompatible with sinning against Him. Now, the fact today is that the name of God is not respected by and large. There are a few corners of society that still have an innate respect for God. Hopefully those corners of society are a little larger than I think. But many use God's name in swear words. They deny his rightful place as king, scoff at the idea of a creator, or belittle his people. Now, that's not going to end well for them, but that's what they do. For us, we pray that God's name will be exalted and held high here and now, not only in the hereafter. We want God's name to be lifted up now, not just then. Now, <clears throat> I use the title Revere here, and I really had zero idea of what uh, the church was going to do in giving us a little honor with uh, the anniversary of our service. And so this is not meant to undercut that in any way or in any negative way, but I wanted to mention this idea of reverence. Reverence is a good word, uh, but it caused me to think of the title of a minister. The title of a minister, when he's ordained by a church and he reaches that official point of ordination, he then is conferred the title reverend. And that's how in formal address or in culture, say maybe in a newspaper article or something like that, somebody would be called reverend so-and-so. That title bestowed when one is ordained 
means from Latin, a person worthy of honor or respect. Uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable for me as a pastor and for other pastors I trust to, to be called a reverend because the reverend is not the ultimate object of respect. The God whom the reverend serves is the one who is worthy of the respect. Of course, you know, you, you could point, Scripture says, well, a, a minister, a, a reverend, should be honored. He should be respected. His word, as long as it matches Scripture, should be obeyed. He's worthy of double honor if he labors in the word and doctrine and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it's true what Jesus said to call no man on earth your father. Matthew 23, 9. That's in the religious sense, not talking about dad, you know, biological dad. This statement seriously limits the kind of respect that can be offered to a human being. That's why we don't bow and worship humans. The three young men did not bow to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel did not either. He wouldn't even eat the king's food. He wanted to stay kosher, as it were, and and, and so time, many times throughout history, people have lost their heads because they have not been willing to bow to the Caesars, the Pharaohs, or the other despots in the world. Men do not reserve, deserve the kind of honor that only goes to God. The reverend is an agent that should be helping people and directing them to revere God, the only one to be revered. Only God is our Father. So I didn't know what kind of word, you'd have to think about this, but if, if, if there's a reverend, a person, then he's getting people to give reverence to the reverie or something, I, not the referee, the person who deserves all the reverence, that's God. So I don't know if those words are even in English, but you get the idea. So revere God, number one, that's what our life needs to be like. Secondly, the prayer shows us that we must focus on God's priorities. Focus on God's priorities. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's priority is that his kingdom would rule over the earth and that his will would be done on the earth. Okay, just thinking of those two things, that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done. Are those your priorities when you pray, when you live? Now, when we take the first one first, your kingdom come. Terrible confusion about this. I want to write a book on this, okay? That's a future project. But when people say your kingdom come, I think many people think that this means we're praying that many more people will get saved. Now, that's a good prayer. That's a fine prayer. But that's not what this means. That is not what this means. This is not asking for the abstract rule of God to come into somebody's heart or into people's hearts generally. To ask God's kingdom to come is not at all these things. And, and, and after all, when you pray, you do want to understand what you're praying, don't you? I mean, we don't pray in Latin. We don't pray in Latin because you can't understand Latin. We don't pray in a foreign language because you can't understand a foreign language. Although I will say... For the, the little bit of Spanish that I know, to hear somebody who's fluent in Spanish pray to God and, and talk to him as their padre is a blessing. You know, you can, I can understand some of what they're saying, not fully. 
especially when they go, then they go 100 miles an hour, and it's like, woo-wee. I guess we talk that fast in English, we just don't realize it. But when you're praying to God that your kingdom would come, what you're saying is that you're asking the worldwide king, Jesus, to come and establish his worldwide kingdom on the earth with all of its governmental, societal, political, religious, spiritual, economic aspects. You're asking him to abolish This is what you're doing. You're asking him to abolish all pretending governments. You're asking him to abolish the United Nations and all others that would pretend to his throne. You're asking for something to come that is big, not small. Universal, not individual. Future, not present. What are you asking? You're asking for Daniel 2.44 to be fulfilled. Listen to this. Would you listen to this? This is not the kind of common, broad, evangelical understanding of the kingdom of God, which they say is present, it's here, right now. Not at all, my friends. Listen to Daniel 2.44. It says this, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, not a church, a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. How do we know this is a kingdom? Well, because the whole chapter has been talking about Babylon, Medo-Persia, kingdom of Greece, Rome. It's going to be a kingdom, just like those kingdoms. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that indicates divine agency, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In other words, it smashed all those other kingdoms. The great God has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That's what we're praying for when we say, God, your kingdom come. We're going to be citizens of that kingdom. We're going to be co-rulers in that kingdom. That's what we're asking. We're not asking for some little thing. And by the way, it's not fulfilled yet. It will be in the future. But if the kingdom were here... Why would you pray for it if you already have it? That's the confusion that so many people have today. There's no king here. He's in heaven. He will come. There's no government here. It will come. We're not in ascendancy. We shall be. Israel is not at the head of the nations. They shall be. That's what it's going to look like. That's what you're saying when you say, thy kingdom come. The priority of God in the future is the kingdom, but the priority of God in the present is, is that what he has prescribed will operate here and now, not just then. That's where I think some of the confusion comes in. He says, well, the kingdom is going to come, so we need to bring it now. No, we need to obey Scripture now. We need to obey the commands of God now. Like, for instance, thy will be done on earth. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. So if you want to do God's will now, which you should if you're a believer, then you need to get busy about your sanctification. How are you going to do that? John chapter 17, verse 17. You're going to take heed to the word of God, and he's going to sanctify you through his truth because his word is truth. The will of God is that you constrain your fleshly passions. Okay, The will of God is that you would participate in a local church, that you would evangelize and teach others to observe all the things that the Lord has commanded, and that you would worship God, and that you would study your scriptures, and you would fellowship together and and all of those things that we do in the work of the church and in the Christian life. That's what God's priority is today. 
awaiting for the fulfillment of what God wants to do in the future, you know, up in the sky someday. That's not sufficient. God wants us to be active here serving him. A friend put it this way, just accidentally almost this week, speaking of matters related to this, he said this, I'm saying that all the extravagant things we want and are all spiritual distractions. We invest our time and a lot of money and resources. The disparity is that we do not do the same thing in our faith at an equal level with the same passion, desire, and financial commitment. We do not invest in our faith in furthering the Lord's Word like we do for our things. Very few do. I'm not saying that you know whatever thing you like is all bad. I'm just saying that the Bible is clear on material things, coveting and worshiping two gods, one of those gods being money. That person lamenting the fact that we don't often do what we pray here. If we pray this prayer, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, what are we doing? We're addressing God reverently in our prayers. We are seeking His priorities. We're asking Him for our, thirdly, our physical provision. Very short statement here, but very, very critical. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Many of us probably have sat down at the table and thanked God for what He's given us. I hope you do. You don't deserve that stuff that's on the table or heating up on the oven or in the microwave or in the refrigerator. But have you ever got up in the morning and said, God, I pray that you'll provide today for my family, for me and my wife and my children? Think about that. That's how he instructs us to pray. I reflect on other cultures where they don't have refrigeration. They don't have Costco, Sam's Club, Kroger's, Myers, Aldi's, all those stores that you go to to fill up your pantry and refrigerator and freezer. They go to the store every single day to get a loaf of bread or to get meat or to get other supplies that they need or milk. Every day they go to the store. We try to avoid going to the store every day, especially during COVID. (laughs) But um, it's a different way of existing. How do you know if you're going to have, how do you know if the shops are open? How do you know the streets are safe to go out? How do you know there's no shortages? You, you might not be able to get what you want that day if you go out. So you pray to God, give us this day our daily bread. We need food and water to live. I think you know if you don't have water after a few days, you expire. If you don't have food after maybe a few weeks at most, you expire. Without food, we're done. Without water, we're finished. God provides those things for us, though, doesn't he? And we ought to ask God for that provision. I mean, think, asking God is pleasing to him. It shows that we seriously recognize that we're completely dependent upon God for our wealth, our ability to work and get food and everything else. You know, that comes to the forefront if you become ill or the breadwinner in your home becomes incapacitated. You know, if you just assume or presume upon God's goodness, you're not walking in holiness. Now, notice, sustenance is not an automatic right. Now, this is going to really shock the people that are on the far left of the political spectrum. I don't intend to be shocking. I just intend to be truthful. 
everyone else is not required to cater to our whims and wishes, for example, if we're lazy. Okay? You realize that? In God's economy, we do not have an automatic right to eat. We, we treasure our rights as Americans, don't we? We have the right to free speech, we think. We have the, the right to uh, life, we think, and so on. Maybe. But do you realize that we don't have the right to eat? We must do something productive to grow our own food or to trade for it or make it. As 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, the fellow who refuses to work, he's saying he's not going to eat. Of course, if we're disabled, we deserve help. We're compassionate. Don't be ridiculous, as our brother says. That's not on the table. We're talking about able-bodied people. There's no free ride in God's economy. No free ride in God's economy. Okay? So we don't have a right to eat, like some people say. Now, you might actually say this. We do have a right to work. We have a command to work. In fact, Adam and Eve were told to work the garden before the fall. Work is not a thing that was produced by the fall. In fact, we are going to work and serve God for all eternity in heaven apart from sin. Do you ever think about that? Heaven is not just sitting back in a lazy boy chair rocking, you know, uh, for eternity. <laughs> it's not. We're going to be serving God in a wonderful society that he's going to create, and it's going to be marvelous. So we thank God every time that he provides food for us. You know, he does not have to provide for us three squares a day, does he? Some of us don't eat three squares a day. Okay, two. Okay, one. But he doesn't have to provide any of that. It's out of his abundance and his grace for those of us who are his followers as well as those of us who are not. Fourthly, we must hasten on. We are to ask God for not only his physical provision, but his spiritual provision. And there are two legs to this. He talks about forgiveness first, and then he talks about not leading us into temptation. Let's take those in turn. First of all, he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, somebody with a large credit card bill probably loves this verse. Unfortunately, it doesn't apply to credit card bills, okay? It's not that kind of debt that we're talking about here, okay? This is, this is spiritual debt. This is a debt that is not financial, but it's a moral obligation. Jesus is talking about sin as debt. And that debt cannot be paid off by us. Its interest rate is too high not to mention the principle that is due. Now, God is ready and willing to forgive. He's faithful to the work of Christ, 1 John 1, 9, to cleanse his people and all of their sins and to do so continuously. You know that? The blood of Christ cleanses over and over and over again us from all sin. I thank God for that truth because too many times I have sinned We don't even know how far, how far we fall short of the perfection of God. Thank God for his cleansing. Now, we forgive others, I trust, too, don't we? So the Bible says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors to us. Do we? Have we? 
This means that we don't hold sin against the person anymore. We're not obligating them to make restitution on the spiritual level. Obviously, somebody of truly repentant should make restitution if they can. If they stole five bucks from you, they should give you the five bucks back. In fact, in the Old Testament law, it was even more than giving back. It was giving back plus a penalty to show the severity of taking someone's private property for your own personal use. But notice it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a a movie that we have watched in our family uh, that was a Christian film in which there was a used car salesman. And the used car salesman got saved and and straightened out with the Lord and and everything turned out happily in the end. But in the beginning of the movie, he, he, he shystered a pastor. And it was pretty bad. But the pastor, when he got the car, thought he was getting a nice deal. And so he prayed for the uh, guy who was the auto salesman. And he, and he said something like this, Lord, just like the auto salesman has treated me in this deal, he's being thankful in his heart for it because he think he's, he's thinking he's getting a good deal. Just as he's treated me, would you also return to him? Oh, he didn't know what he was praying. The Lord did, right. The whole point of the illustration being, as you have done, it, 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 you know, that comparison, very interesting. And the Lord uses that kind of idea here, as we forgive our debts. So in other words, if, if I were to say, may God forgive you just like you forgive others, how would your forgiveness standing be with God? Would it be in trouble? That's a very important point, isn't it? Yeah, so we want to be forgiving and I don't have time, but if you look in Matthew 18, you'll see and you'll remember, you already know the, the parable the Lord taught about the fellow who owed a huge sum of money was forgiven, then went out and troubled one of his guys that owed him a few bucks, and he wasn't forgiving. What a foolish thing. We can't be like that, my friends. God has forgiven us so much. The second spiritual dimension, not only forgiveness, but also, you know what? We want to avoid getting into the place of needing forgiveness in the first place, don't we? We want to be forgiven when we sin, but we'd like to not be in those situations where we know that we are going to sin. And so we pray, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Two years ago, there was a, a kerfuffle about this in the Catholic Church, you might recall. And I put a little quotation from USA Today here, June of 2019, Pope Francis reportedly approved changes to the wording of the Lord's Prayer, known as the Our Father. Instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, Catholics will say, do not let us fall into temptation. And he gave a justification for that. He didn't feel the English translation was good because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls. It's not him, God, pushing me into temptation and then to see how I have fallen. Now, this got out there, and people were saying, basically, wow, the Pope is really brash. He's changing the Lord's Prayer. I think that's all way overblown. Okay? Now, Catholics teach many wrong things, but not everything they say is wrong. And what he's doing here is, is, is dealing with an issue that is somewhat of an issue with this passage. The wording is only a translational wording, not a change in meaning. After all, think about James chapter 1 and verse 13. Does the Lord tempt us? 
The Lord is not tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted from his own lusts when he sees something he wants and his lust begins to give birth to sin. It conceives and then gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Okay, so he's dealing with this issue of what about this matter of temptation? And what I want to encourage you to do, you can read a little bit more detail in my notes, is this. Don't get all twisted up in knots about how some other person translates this passage of Scripture. Look at what it's saying. Think about its meaning. What is our relationship to sin anyway? What Jesus is telling us to do here in these words, however you want to figure about the matter of temptation, is this. He is telling us to pray about avoiding sin. Lord, lead my feet in the light. Don't let me stray from your precepts or commands. I don't want to go there. Don't let me get into a situation, Lord, if if going down that street is going to cause me a problem, don't let me go down that street. Make my car break down before I get to that street. Whatever it is, okay? We want to pray about avoiding sin. We beg God to avoid sin. Why? Because God hates sin, because we hate sin, because sin hurts ourselves and others, because sin interrupts a happy relationship with God. Why do we pray to stay away from sin? Because sin leads to death, and sin is just plain old bad. That's why we don't want to get into sin. It's this attitude that Jesus is telling us that should be marking our lives. We don't take lightly sin. And then, you know, like you go and you sin all week and then you go to confessional and just confess it. And then, okay, now I'm slate's clean. I can go back and do it again. That is foolishness upon foolishness, my friends. God, please keep our feet from the paths of sin. We want to fear God. We don't want to sin against God. This is our daily request. When you wake up in the morning, may these words ring in your ears. Revere God. Ask Him for spiritual provision. Ask Him that you're life priorities would match his, ask him for his physical provision, all of this stuff. Now notice this, it says, lead us not into temptation, but what? I think that word but is very important. It's informing us that there's a connection between the first phrase and the second. Do you realize that you could be just like Peter? The Lord said to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. You too. Do you know that? Job, God, I'd I'd rather not be like Job. I'd rather not suffer the things that Job had to suffer. Some of you have had problem upon problem upon problem come upon you, and I... I'm sorry for you that way, but Job was only spared because God said, you can come within an inch, but you can't go any farther of taking him away. Ask Job. Of course, Job didn't have the benefit of knowing like we do, reading the text of Scripture. Be honest with me. Do you want to be anywhere near that roaring lion who's seeking to devour you? Then you pray, God, deliver me from sin. Don't let me sin, God, because I'm altogether too aware of my own nature. 
I will go astray faster than you can snap your fingers. God, if you just protect me, please. Keep me from myself. Keep me from sin. Finally, we've looked at all of those. This text at the end of verse 13 is not in all of your Bibles, but it is in the majority of Greek manuscripts, and so I'm going to treat it here. And it's the text that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We end with recognition that God is king, back to where we began with the reverence for God. These words extol God as the ruler of the kingdoms of the world. God has set his throne in the heavens, my friends, and his kingdom rules over everything. Daniel chapter 4, you remember Nebuchadnezzar finally, after seven years, bird's claws, dew of heaven, eating grass, realizes that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. That's what he had to learn, and he was humbled by that. Daniel 2.37 says that God gives kingdom, power, and glory to those whom he chooses. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, you have a picture of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and it's given to him a power and kingdom and glory and honor that he will rule that kingdom that we talked about in Daniel 2.44. That's what he will do. You see the same extolling of God in 1 Chronicles and Psalm 32, Psalm 145, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, all these portions of Scripture exalt our God as worthy of honor and glory and might and power and a name which is above every name. Bottom line is God deserves our worship. He is God. And we must include those ideas in our prayer and mean them. We do honor God as king. We do revere God. We do focus on his priorities, his kingdom. God, may it come. May your will be done now until that time. And we ask God for our physical and our spiritual provision. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, keep us from the circumstances that would cause us to need forgiveness. Keep us from sin, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.